Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. She was beautiful, privileged, educated and famous. Dorothea McKellar was one of the most eligible young women in Australia in her day. She'd also written a poem that became an anthem to its often harsh and ever-changing landscape, a poem that would ultimately become something of a burden. In the first biography to have access to Dorothea's private papers, including a diary she wrote in code, we discover a very independent-minded young woman who defied convention and lived life on her terms. I spoke to her biographer, Deborah Fitzgerald, in Sydney and began by asking her to tell us who Dorothea was. Dorothea McKellar was a poet who was born in 1885 and she's most famous for the poem My Country, which has the line, I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains. Most people know that poem. Even younger people, if they don't know the poem entirely, they've certainly heard the phrases, I love a sunburnt country, the beauty and the terror, the droughts and flooding rains, which remains very relevant to this day. But not many people know much about the author of that poem, Dorothea McKellar, and I was surprised how little I knew about her. And I was, I'm of a vintage where it was taught in school when I was coming through. And I'd certainly heard her name, but when I was approached to write the biography, I thought to myself, oh, well, there must be a couple of biographies out there and maybe I can flesh it out a little or add something or find something new. And I was shocked at how little had been written about her. And I was thinking about a a number of different projects that I might work on for my thesis when I was approached by the family of Dorothea, who said to me, would you be interested in writing her biography? And of course, I googled her and there wasn't very much out there at all. And they said, you can have access to her papers at the Mitchell Library. And I jumped at the chance. So I did my thesis. And on the basis of that, I rewrote it for publication. I'm curious to know how the family came to approach you. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it so happens that I am friends with Lyndall Hughes, who is a member of the McKellar family. I had no idea. I've known her socially. She used to work with my husband. I've known her socially for many years. Had no idea of the connection. Her mother is a cousin. Dorothea McKellar didn't have any children, nor did any of her brothers. So direct descendants, there were no direct descendants. So the McKellar fortune, including copyright and the things for her poetry and books, went to the cousins. And Jennifer Stiller, Lyndall's mum, is the person who really wanted to get this project done. She wanted a comprehensive, definitive biography of Dorothea before it was all lost to time, because it's over 100 years now. So Lyndall approached me and said, and they'd, they'd liked my first book, fortunately for me. <laughs> and uh, Lyndall approached me and said, would you be interested? And I was just so excited because I was, uh, as I said, shocked that there was so little information out there about her. And I wanted to repatriate her in a way. I wanted to bring her back in. So many Australian women are lost to history. And I I just really wanted to tell her story because it's it's not only a literary story in the sense of her writing. She was a fascinating woman. And it's also really, I think, great chronicle of the times, that early 1900s, you know, at the time of federation and women gaining the vote. And there was all sorts of stuff going on at that time. 
given the times, given that she's a woman who grew up in a time when, for example, many female writers, in order to get published, were having to assume male pseudonyms, how did Dorothea become so famous for this one poem in her lifetime at a young age? We'll talk about whether that was a blessing and a curse in a moment, but given all the circumstances that were freighted against a woman becoming famous as a poet, how did that happen? I think uh, a few things had to come together, I guess, in the universe. She was writing from an early age. She was quite a precocious child. She was very clever. She was born to a wealthy family. Her father, Charles, was a doctor, a paediatrician, and was interested in the mental health of young people. He later became a parliamentarian. They lived at Point Piper. They lived on, when uh, Dorothy was born in 1885, they lived at this beautiful property on five acres of direct harbour front land at Point Piper, which we here in Sydney cannot even uh, imagine somebody having that kind of a parcel of land. It was beautiful. The house was lovely. They had servants' quarters. They had stables. They had a a field so the boys could practice their polo. They, it it was delightful and also it was full of native trees and plants and bushes. So Dorothy had her imagination fueled in terms of landscape with both the native garden and the harbour and Bondi Beach off in the distance from a very early age. So she was writing early on. By the time she came to submit My Country in 1908, she sent it to the Spectator in London. So she sent it there first rather than to an Australian publication. I suspect she would have had some contacts through her father. He was very well connected. They travelled to London all the time when, when she was a child. She'd been there a number of times prior to, to her sending the poem. So she, they were friends of the Fairfaxes from the Sydney Morning Herald fame. Her agent, although I don't think he was instrumental in the publication of, the, of her poem at first, but Henry Hyde Champion, who ultimately published her first collection, The Closed Door, in 1910, he was an Englishman and, and good friends with the likes of Joseph Conrad. So I, I feel she was probably in a better position than most women at that time. Now, the success happened for a number of reasons. It was well-received from the get-go. It was well-reviewed. It was published in Australia after it was published in London, the likes of The Bulletin and The Sydney Morning Herald. It was at this time that the name changed. She called it Core of My Heart, and editors of newspapers began to pull out the phrase My Country and use that as the headline. I'm assuming because it was nationalistic, patriotic at, at a time when Federation was still quite young. So by the time it turned up in the collection in 2010, it was titled My Country, but originally it had been Core of My Heart. I just think that's an important thing to mention too, and we might get to the invisibility of Indigenous people later on, but some people take umbrage at the, the title, My Country, and the, the colonial overtones and the sense of possession that comes with that title, but it wasn't Dorothea's title. So if you think about her title, Core of My Heart, that puts a very different slant on the poem. It was something of a love song for her. Getting back to the success of the poem, I think it was World War I that really 
took it into the stratosphere as it was. It became an unofficial anthem at that point. Diggers were writing home quoting the poem. There's an anecdote in the book where one young man sent a letter to his family, to his sister, and he had underlined the last verse of my country where it says, I know to which brown country my homing thoughts will fly. And he had written, I feel the same. And that young man was killed. And I think that echoed across the country with these young men yearning for home and the description of the landscape as Dorothea had had done it really resonated with people. And from then on, it was really, as I said, an unofficial anthem. And here now is a little snippet of Dorothea McKellar herself reading from that famous poem with her very rolled R's and apologies for the guitar strumming in the background. This is Dorothea McKellar, my country. For love of field and coppice, of green shaded lanes, of ordered woods and gardens is running in your veins. Strong love of grey-blue distance, brown streams and soft dim skies. I know but cannot share it, my love is otherwise. I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. I love her far horizons, I love her jewel seas, her beauty and her terror, the wide brown land for me. The tragic ring-barked forests, dark white beneath the moon, the sapphire-nested mountains, the hot gold hush of bloom. Green tangle of the brushes where lithe lianas coil and orchids deck the treetops and ferns the crimson soil. Now, you said before that the family approached you and asked you to become the official biographer of Dorothea McKellar. And I just wondered what in your mind that word official means. You know, what sort of parameters does that create? So, for example, let's say, hypothetically, that in gaining access to her papers, you had found something, and we'll come to the sort of key relationship in her life in a moment, but let's say you'd found something that was truly shocking. When it's an official biography, do you mean that it has to have the rubber stamp and the approval of the family that approached you in the first place? Or what does that word official confer? I think it confers the fact that I had access to all her papers because while they're held at the Mitchell Library in the special collections, you have to have permission from the family to view them. And so I couldn't, ha- I, ca- I couldn't have written an unofficial biography in the sense of without her diaries and letters, there's so little written about her. So I needed that access. So it gave me access. In terms of what are the constraints, I guess that might be what you're asking me, it's certainly a negotiation. We had back and forth a lot about certain areas. There were certain anecdotes or there were certain things that the family were like, well, you know, is that important? Do we need to include that? And I would perhaps push back and say, absolutely. I just think it would not be a full picture of her if we don't include this. However, sometimes I thought 
it's not that important. In the scheme of things, it's not that important and it doesn't detract from her the full picture of her. So there were some things I conceded and there were some things that they conceded, but I felt very strongly that I wanted to do a fair representation of her flaws and all. I, I felt her it was important to tell her story in all its truth rather than somehow paint a rosy picture of you know, the fascinating life that she had. She had a fascinating life, but she also had problems. She also had difficulties with relationships. So there were all sorts of things. And I think that just endears a person rather than somebody who would, who appears as just a good and righteous and, and loving and people say, oh, well, that can't be true. That can't Absolutely. be real. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and I mean, that that is so important, isn't it? That the flaws are the things that we identify with and that make someone who might otherwise seem remote and somehow perfect human. So the two things that I'm imagining that the family and you would have had that kind of dialogue about are the central relationship in her life, her deep love, friendship. Let, let's explore that a little bit with Ruth Bedford and also her mental health, that she did go in and out of periods of depression. Would those two have been the things that you had to discuss most with the family? Certainly if we had discussions around her relationship with Ruth Bedford. I think the family was okay with the idea that she had a romantic relationship with Ruth. I'm not explicit in calling Ruth a lesbian or Dorothea a lesbian. And, you know, people. some people have asked me about that. And I said, well, I, I don't know if they had a sexual relationship. Like, there was nothing explicit in any of the letters and the diaries and I did not think that in all honesty I could make that declaration. Do I think they had an intimate romantic relationship? Yes I do. Do I think if it had been a different time would they perhaps have had a, a live-in relationship together? Yes I do. The family were quite okay with the idea of Ruth and Dorothea being intimate. I think they preferred that I didn't make it uh, or or speculate on the explicit nature of their relationship or whether they were having sex or not. I think it's obvious when you read between the lines. I think their letters and I think the way Dorothy describes in her diaries their play acting together. For your listeners, their, their play acting was very much uh, central to their relationship. They, they wrote plays together and they developed characters and they wrote scenes and then they would act them out. And this wasn't that unusual. I thought it was very strange when I first read about <laughs> it in the diaries. I thought, okay, <laughs> because they were they were acting in the bush and on the beach and by the swimming baths and on the roof and in their bedrooms. And I was thinking, well, this, there's a lot of acting going on here. <laughs> and Ruth later mentions that it was something the Bronte sisters did when they were teasing out the dialogue for their novels. But I think that was a different thing be between sisters because Dorothea and Ruth were often creating characters that were husband and wife and they would be in intimate scenes together and they would act out those scenes and Dorothea would later describe them as thrilling and electrifying and she couldn't get mm. the feeling off her and and I think the family were comfortable that that was an unusual set of circumstances and, and when 
Dorothy and Ruth lived together in London in 1912, that was unusual in itself. I mean, Dorothy would have been 27, I guess, by then. But for Charles and Marion to leave the two of them alone, unchaperoned, two young unmarried women was quite unusual for the time. And they had a final time. They they had what Dorothea described as their scribble corners where they would write each day. Sometimes they would have breakfast, as she said, sometimes half-dressed, sometimes not. <laughs> they they travelled the countryside in sort of Rolls Royces going from town to town throughout England. They travelled across Europe and they were writing together. So they wrote two novels together. Dorothea wrote a novel on her own and Ruth and Dorothea collaborated on two novels and... So they really, at that time, had a beautiful life together and they were going to the theatre and buying opera cloaks and practising their fencing and I don't know, whatever else they were doing, but it sounded fantastic. It really did. In fact, that's one of my favourite sections of the book is you do get the sense of them having an outrageous amount of, again, very privileged fun and loving playing house. So, you know, you'll say, Dorothea popped off to Harrods to go and buy a few plants. And you just <laughs> think, you know, here they are, they're free, they're cashed up. They're in a, a great big bustling city where nobody much knows them. Yeah, it does sound like a really good time. I'm curious about something, Deborah, because you mentioned several times that when she's writing in her diaries, she's writing in code. Now, obviously, you don't write in code unless you've got something to hide. I wanted to know whether you think or whether you discovered that Ruth also wrote in code and what the decoding process was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I was lucky in that I didn't have to decipher the code because there was a book published, I think it was in the 1990s, by Jodie Brunston, and it was called The Edited Diaries of Dorothea McKellar. But she only took a section of her life from 1910 to 1918, so during mostly during the war years, but also during some of the critical relationships she had in her life. So luckily for me, Jodie had cracked the code, so I only had to come along and apply it to the diaries outside of that period to understand what she was saying. And so the code was merely a, a set of symbols, triangles, squiggles, <laughs> squares, plus, you know, that kind of thing that were representing letters of the alphabet. So one, once you understood which symbol was which letter, it was quite easy. She certainly was doing it to keep it from prying eyes, although... I, there wasn't anything very titillating in, in the secret code writing anyway. I guess it was mainly during her relationship with Robin Dodds, who was an older architect, a friend of her father's from Brisbane. So I think she definitely developed it in order to keep her relationship secret, but she never at any point says we're being intimate. But she does, in the case of Robin, say things like, we finally made our feelings known and it, we finally did something and it was thrilling but only a little. So it's all very cryptic and you can tell that she's exploring there. But he was a married man so it was a very illicit 
relationship. So you can understand why she would have wanted the secret code. So she, with Robin, she went to Brisbane to stay with the family of William McGregor, who was the governor of Queensland at the time, around 1909-1910. She was friends with his daughter, Babs, and she went up there to keep Babs company while the governor sort of went on this tour of Queensland, particularly North Queensland. But when she came back, she went to stay with Robin and his wife at the urging of her parents because they were good friends of theirs. But they developed this relationship between the older Mr Dodds. His wife inexplicably would take to her bed each evening with a terrible headache and would leave Dorothea and Robin to chat into the night. And then she started meeting up with him in the city for picnics and shopping sprees. And she talked about her dear R. Ruth was also an R. So it was an R and an R often in the diaries, dear Robin and dear Ruth. This went on over several years and I found it quite fascinating because when Robin came to Sydney, he would go and visit the McKellars at Denara and if Dorothea was unwell, which as you alluded to earlier, she often was, Robin would go and visit her in her bedroom and I, I find this quite shocking because at the time women weren't even allowed in a drawing room with men unchaperoned. Mm. So I can only think that Charles was completely unaware of any sort of romantic attachment between them because he would have thought, oh, he's my dear friend, he's like an uncle to her or something and would have been, you know, absolutely fine with them spending time together. I think he would have been totally shocked if he'd known how intimate their relationship was. But of course he was married and after a time it fizzled out. Yes, I kept thinking how convenient that the wife disappeared with a headache all the time and that, you know, she, she was always ill with something and whether she she was aware of what was going on and she condoned it in some way. And I also think, you know, it's interesting that when you crack the code or when you apply the code, really what's expressed there is still quite coy you know, she's not, as you say, explicit in describing a sexual encounter with either Ruth or with Robin. Do you think, you you never tell us this, I'm just thinking aloud here. Hmm. I know the language of the time was different. And when she applies the term making love, that's not what we think of as making love. No. Do you think that she was reserved and prudish when it came to sex or not? Yes, I think she would have been. I don't think she was in her play acting with Ruth, but I think there was some justification there in the sense that we are acting, we're playing a role, and so this is what the characters would be doing. And so somehow that gave her some distance from the act. I think with Robin, she would have been... I definitely think, I mean, there is one situation they were at a ball, I think, in Brisbane and, and they kissed and and then there was another time when they were going home in a car, I think a, a chauffeur-driven mm. car, as you do, and um, <laughs> <laughs> she says something about we finally did it and and it was wonderful or something. And so I'm assuming they kissed, maybe they touched uh, when she was in hospital in Sydney and he came to visit her, she alludes there, she said, oh, I'm sure I look terrible in my nightdress, but, you know, finally we we declared ourselves or, you know, there were those sorts of things. So 
Did they have sex? Probably not. Was there some kind of intimacy, sexual touching? Probably. So I also think that her her stories about her suitors over the years and the and a couple of alleged engagements, I think were all part of her probably struggling with her sexuality anyway, but I also mm. think there was certainly in her later life some attempts to obfuscate perhaps her relationship with Ruth. And so it would have been quite convenient for her to have had a crush on a married man with that not being possible for him and her to be together long term because there's no way he would have left his wife and and it would have been a huge scandal and Dorothea wouldn't have done that. So so in some ways I think her choices of suitors and she had many suitors. I mean they were falling yes. from the trees. That's to right. Marry I her. mean we we need to remind listeners she's extremely good looking. She's oh, a beautiful, beautiful woman. Mm. She's rich and mm. as you say there are many suitors, many eligible men. So how do you think she dropped them or kept them at bay because there's certainly no sense that her parents Charles and Marion are pressuring her at any point. No one in this book is saying to her, now come on, you're just about to be on the verge of becoming an old maid. You really do have to accept this one. Now, maybe I'm imagining too much from having read too many novels of the time, but I am astonished that her parents do not appear to be pressuring her. Yes, I think they were quite, they were quite progressive in lots of ways, her parents. In other ways, not so much because she was she was privately schooled with governesses at home, and she desperately wanted to go to university. She went and sat in on classes at the University of Sydney, but her parents said it was absolutely pointless and a waste of time because at some point she would be married to some wealthy man, and that was what they were raising her to do. So I think there was always an expectation from them that she would get married, but I, yes, they were progressive in the sense that I don't think they were pressuring her in the way other parents were. She didn't come out, for example, come out as a debutante because she didn't want to. And she said, you know, I've already been to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. You know, what do I need with this with, with this new coming out as a debutante? When, and she was a little bit older by that time. Also, she saw it as a meat market. She really detested the idea of kind of being paraded out as an eligible young a woman who, you know, everybody could, all the men could come around and sort of say, oh, is she, is she wife material? So I think they, uh, her parents respected her in that sense. She had strong views on certain things. I think, they, I think her parents would have been deeply disappointed, as I said, that none of the children, whilst a couple of them got married, none of them had children of their own. I think Dorothea kept the suitors at bay by finding some reason legitimate reason or other to reject them and then of course her parents became elderly and as the only daughter it fell to her to take care of them and to be honest with you I don't think she ever wanted to get married. No no I think I think you're right but I do think also that without getting too Freudian about it her father was a very dominant figure in her life and they were unusually close because he took her with him as his translator to international conferences, which gave her extraordinary access to 
influential people around the world, but there was a special bond between them. Can you talk a little bit about Charles? Because you've said he was a public figure, he was a significant man, but some of his ideas would be very unpalatable to us now. Yes, he was an extraordinary man. I mean, I think there's a there's a biography of Charles McCullough out there waiting to be written because his achievements are legion. He, as I said, was a doctor and at some point he was also president of the Bank of New South Wales because he married Marion Buckland and her father, Thomas, was the president of the Bank of New South Wales. So, of course, they were keeping it in the family. But then he went on to be a parliamentarian and he pushed through some quite momentous legislation. Some things about, for example, dairies and their hygiene in regard to babies and milk and to help infant mortality, to help women who were deserted by their partners to be able to be supported financially. Some really quite progressive things. And Australia was seen around the world as kind of a, you know, a bit of a litmus test for some of their social experiences. And he was quite, he was at the forefront of that. But of course, As part of that, he was also coming across some very radical ideas that were being put forward at the time. So certainly in 1912, he went to a congress in London, which was talking about eugenics. We think of that maybe now as kind of a Nazi uh, kind of association. And of course, eugenics is about the idea that we we get rid of the weak or the feeble-minded, as they would have called them in those days, in order to build a stronger genetic pool of human beings. And, of course, it's, that's just abhorrent now when we think about who, who was going to make the rules about who, who was weak-minded and who wasn't and what sort of disabilities would be rendered, you know, as part of this experiment and you know, things that we can't even possibly imagine now. When I first came across this, I I was shocked and I I immediately thought, oh, but he's, he's so progressive in other ways, what's happening? But when I read more, I understood that it was something that was muted across politics, on the spectrum of politics, from the far right to the far left, people were talking about this. And it was sort of on the basis of Charles Darwin's teachings about, you know, maybe we can make better plants in terms of feeding the world, make them stronger with, you know, genetics. And they were saying, well, if that's true for plants and animals, why can't we do it for human beings? It only makes sense. So it was kind of this idea of just, well, science doing the best in terms of creating a super race of human beings. Of course, the reality and the ethics and the morals of all of that were to be teased out and eventually, of course, you know, people said, oh, no, this isn't going to work. This is, you know, we're going too far with this. Dorothea didn't mention in her diaries what she thought about that. She was with him at the Congress in 1912. As you say, with five languages, she was translating for Charles French, German, Italian, Spanish, English. Was She was just going in and out of the languages. She was fluent. And she was sometimes the only woman in the room. So it was quite extraordinary access, as you say. There was the likes of Churchill was there and Darwin's grandson was there. It it was a very high-powered group of people and Dorothea was doing all the translating. So she was extraordinary in that way and she did have a very close relationship with her father. Her mother, Marion, was a lovely woman, but she had a hearing problem and slowly over time she was going deaf. So she had to carry the ear trumpet of the day to be able to sit at a table, a luncheon or a dinner table and understand the guests. So Dorothea always sat with her so she could relate the conversation to her. 
and therefore Marion really wasn't capable of travelling with Charles on, on, these, on these trips where he was fact-finding for the government back home. So in some ways she became almost a de facto wife for him in supporting him in all of that. And so they were very close and so I don't think he probably pushed her to get married. He enjoyed her company immensely. And I guess she might have found it hard to find someone who might replace her father in that way. Well, and the other thing that I think is interesting is along with her intellect and her gift for languages and her sort of social ease moving in those circles, she was also outdoorsy. She was a very competent swimmer and a rider. And the portrait that you paint is of a woman who is unusually physically fearless. So later on, for example, she descends in a gold mine in a cage going vertically 3,000 feet down because she's curious and she wants to know what it's like down there. And then in the 1920s, you have her flying in small planes across Scandinavia. I'm wondering whether you think it's the case that like a lot of young women who grow up with brothers, she got a kind of sense of physical fearlessness from growing up with young men. Was she a tomboy? I definitely think she was a tomboy. I think this is this is the enigma of Dorothea is that she has these different sides and it's really hard to reconcile them. She was absolutely by the time she was 18, 19, a beautiful, sophisticated, educated urban woman who could hold her own with royalty, with the prime ministers, with business people, with the literati both in Sydney and in London. But when she was in the bush, you know, she loved to swim, she learnt to dive, she learnt to surf, which, again, a woman in her status at that time was very unusual. She learned to drive. When she was in the bush, she learned to ride side saddle, but whenever she got a chance, she would ride astride if her father wasn't looking. <laughs> I, I, I definitely agree that having three brothers did make a difference in terms of her childhood. They were, it was rough and tumble in the gardens. Mm. They were they were climbing trees, they were riding horses. But the physicalities, particularly of swimming, swimming and diving and horse riding, she absolutely loved the freedom of that. She loved the freedom of, of getting out of the, the stuffy clothes that they had to wear, even though she loved going shopping and buying lovely frocks and hats for various things. And I must say, I, I often joke, jokingly say she was the Australian Kim Kardashian of her day because she didn't move without the newspapers writing about what she was wearing, where she was going, what trip overseas she was doing now, what play she had been to see, what she thought about this or that. It, it was quite amazing seeing how often she was mentioned or quoted in the newspaper. So she had these two sides, and you're right in terms of her fearlessness. I mean, even the world travels. People sort of say, oh, they travelled the world. She really did travel the world. Mm. She she went to Canada, the United States, South America, the Caribbean, Indonesia, Malaysia, China, Japan, the Middle East, Europe, UK. She went everywhere and she was doing mm. this on, on a ship and it would be three months at a time and she writes about seasickness so often. I mean, I couldn't do it. I did a recent, you know, the 24-hour long haul from from London to here and I was complaining about 
<laughs> you know, feeling tired and jet lag and all of that. And she was on the on these ships for such long periods of time. I agree with you that those little planes she took when it was very early on in aviation across from the UK to Europe uh, just terrified me. I was just saying, oh, my God, you're a better woman than I am, Dorothea. It was so funny, therefore, that she had these wobbles, as she called them, these Mm. heart palpitations, the dizziness, the fatigue. She had to take to her bed often, which I found interesting, people were at her bedside in all sorts of places. Do you remember in the book where she visited Norway? Of course, she went to an event with the King of Norway. <laughs> but, but but I think it was Catherine Scott, the, the founder of Poets, Essayists and, and Novelists International, who came to hotel her hotel and then went and sat by her bedside. I thought, oh, my goodness, she's like this, you know, queen or something that just lies there and people come to visit her. Yes, I always found it interesting that on the one hand she could be so physical and so brave and so courageous and then on the other hand she felt at times very fragile and I don't know exactly what was going on with her. The family, of course, now has a diagnosis of sarcoidosis, which is an autoimmune disease that is has run through the family. So the cousins, it's it's a member of their family has it. And certainly autoimmune diseases can have impacts such as fatigue, dizziness, heart palpitation, breathlessness, depending on, you know, how serious it is. It wouldn't have been diagnosed back then. And then they wouldn't have had anything, any medication which might have slowed that or changed it. So there's a strong possibility that there was something physical going on. But whether it was that, that then prompted the anxiety and the depression. I don't know, but I definitely think she suffered from anxiety and depression as she went through life. And, of course, then there's the story of her brother Keith, which I think really did play into her mental health going forward. So this is losing her brother while while still very young. We sort of lost track of the fact that she was a writer and that she was a famous writer and that she was writing through all these other things, all the social activity, all the work with her father, she was writing. What do you think fame meant to her? I don't think it meant anything to her. I I really don't. She was, her family were, were Scottish Protestants and they were very practical and certainly women were taught that they weren't to blow their own trumpets, they weren't to get above their station and they weren't to make too much of themselves and I definitely think she carried that through her life. I think she loved writing and I think she wanted to have a career in the sense that she wanted to continue to be published. She did publish four collections of poetry up until 1926 and the three novels and, of course, lots of plays and and other things. I just don't think that she was looking for fame at all. I think she was quite shocked by the success of my country. And she even says at one point in her diary, oh, I got, I got a letter today addressed to Dorothea McCalla, poetess of Donara Point Piper, and she sort of laughed you know, in a bemused way, well, why are they addressing me as that? And in fact, she never called herself a poet throughout her entire career. And even towards the end of her life, she was saying things like, well, yes, I wrote some 
some verse and I wrote it with sincerity and I hope that's the way it came across, but she would never... So I And I think that's part of the reason that she didn't have more fame in terms of her as a person as opposed to the poem because she wasn't the sort of person who put herself forward. I mean, when she was first being paid for having her poems published, and they were being published in America and South Africa, around the world, and she was getting money for each publication. You know, her family was quite bemused, to use that word. They thought it was, you know, a hobby. They thought it was just a hobby that, oh, this little hobby Dorothea was doing, and, oh, she's getting a bit of pocket money. Oh, isn't that nice? And <laughs> so, you know, she, she was never able to kind of get too big for her boots. But I do think the success of My Country shocked her. It wasn't her favourite poem, by the way. There's another poem called Colour that she Mm. says she much preferred to that one. But she never seemed to be able to get out from under it because no matter what she did after that, and I I do think she, she wanted critical acclaim, I think, rather than fame. She was always being compared to that poem. So whatever she came out with, the reviews were were inevitably something like, well, she's written some very lovely verse here, but it doesn't reach the heights of my country. And that was very hard on her and very frustrating. And I think probably why she didn't end up writing much towards the end of her life. Yes, it's interesting because it's sort of like the success came too soon with that poem and it becomes a kind of curse and a burden, as you say. She seems to have been quite a good networker and yet at the same time you mentioned the fact that there weren't necessarily warm relationships with a lot of other writers. Yes, she was friends with Ethel Turner, and certainly a lot of other women writers were aware of her, but there seems to have been a little bit of kind of prickliness in some milieus and a little bit of dismissive, maybe jealousy, do you think? Well, possibly. You can imagine somebody who is independently wealthy at that time compared to women who were needing to have a paycheck to make a living from their writing, the jobbing writers, as as we call them, you can imagine that they would have felt a little jealousy or a little frustration. I don't think Dorothea would ever be the sort of person that would rub that in their noses, but she probably was a little aloof, although Ethel Turner writes about her so warmly and says, you know, seeing her is like a, a breath of fresh air and and she's such delightful company and she's so lovely to have at a dinner party. So I just wonder whether it's just a communication thing. People from the upper class who are used to this these kind of interactions felt comfortable with each other and could speak freely and maybe coming from a different background they just didn't communicate in the same way. I'm not sure, but I, di- I definitely felt from letters and even the diaries of some of the other writers that there was a little bit of a disconnect in their relationships with Dorothea. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It could be said, for example, there are other examples of women of that period who could have been perhaps philanthropic and supported other women writers who were not as fortunate as her. I don't see any evidence in your book of Dorothea's awareness of her privilege as something that she could possibly 
She didn't necessarily think about how to be useful and generous to other writers and support other writers. So, so one has to sort of one has to sort of make a point of that. What, in fact, do you think were her politics, if she had any? I think her politics were very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this thing about her being, a, you know, a sophisticated urbanite and a tomboy in, in the country, it, it was the same with her politics. It was so hard to pin her down. I mean, her parents were progressive for the time, but I guess as they got older, they were probably more and more conservative, which is quite natural. She was an early feminist, so she was supportive of women getting the vote as early as 1902 when they when it became law in Australia. And I tell the story of when she was later in London and she was at a luncheon and there was a man there harumphing about the fact that England was talking about giving women the vote and just saying, oh, it's ridiculous that, you know, they're, they're just going to become masculine if you give them the vote. And Dorothea said, I beg your pardon, do you think my mother is masculine? And he said, well, that's not what I said. And she said, and Marion was sitting at the table in a beautiful grey dress with flower, uh, feathers in her hair and looking very feminine. And Dorothea said, well, my mother's had the vote for several years, sir, and I don't <laughs> think there's anything masculine about her. And so the, she put him in his place. And she was certainly a supporter of the suffragettes and the likes of the Pankhurst and people like that. On the other hand, with conscription, she wrote letters in support of conscription during the war when there was, I think it was the um, Billy Hughes 1916, when they voted again on the issue of conscription. She, She was supporting it, but I think maybe because of her brother Keith, she would have felt that if Australia wasn't supporting the empire with troops, then somehow... Keith's death would have been for naught and I I just think she couldn't quite reconcile that. She was later an early environmentalist. She wrote lots of letters to the editor about trees and trees are always a big issue in Sydney and she was telling people, please think about the native trees. Native trees are beautiful. Don't cut them down. Any view can be improved if you're looking at it through the veil of a gorgeous tree and you know, it's, I, I just think it's so funny that we're still seeing headlines today about trees being poisoned or chopped down illegally because somebody wants the view. So so there was that. But then, you know, again, I think I found a membership of, oh, the United Party maybe in the 1930s in Australia, which was definitely a conservative party. So Now, one of the most fascinating things that you bring to light in this biography is that she became a Mills and Boone author. So can you tell us about that particular chapter of her life? Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Because we would now, perhaps, if we were literary snobs, say, oh, Mills and and Boone, aren't they romance novels or the like? But at the time, Mills and Boone was a fairly young publisher and they were doing a lot of books, educational books and Shakespeare and all sorts, so a very different kettle of fish. But she'd been with a particular agent, Alston Rivers, in London for the publication of her first collection and then also for her first novel, Outlaw's Luck. 
And she knew Charles Bean, who was a Sydney Morning Herald correspondent who went to London and, and subsequently wrote a lot about war novels and other, other things. It was well known as a war correspondent. And she was friends with him and he was a great advocate for her and he was always sort of acting as a go-between between agents and things. And so he said, oh, I don't think you're getting a good deal with Alston. Why don't we see what else is out there? And then he suggested the name of an agent who I understand was the first literary agent in London whose name escapes me right this minute. And he said, oh, Alston's giving you a rubbish deal. Mills and Boone will will look after you. We'll get a better deal with them. Let's do that. So she did for a period of time she was with them. So how would you characterise those novels that she wrote for them? <laughs> interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they were interesting in that they were adventure novels and they they had similar themes, all three of them. The two that she wrote with Ruth Bedford, there was Two's Company, Little Blue Devil, and as I mentioned, Outlaw's Luck. And all of them had these young protagonists who often were orphans, wanted to travel the world, had to fend for themselves, and they did. They went on all sorts of adventures. Her books were set in South America and America and New Zealand, you know, a cattle station in New Zealand, and the outback in Australia. So they were they were rollicking good reads and they had lots of love affairs. I I started out thinking that maybe she was writing for Keith who was killed in the war. Maybe she was writing to give him the life that he never had, the adventures that he mm. never had, never went on to. But then some of the characters don't, I, they didn't quite sit right with my idea of Keith. And so then I started wondering whether it was really her if she had been born a man, because one mm. of her poems actually says that, oh, what I could do if I were a man. And so I did. I do think she really felt that strongly that because, as we've said, she was very brave. She did so many courageous things in her travels. Yes, she had privilege, but she still did things that a lot of women of that kind of wealth and class would not have dared to do. So if she'd been a man, I can imagine her being some kind of adventurer, you know, one, yeah. you know, some, one of those sort of Errol Flynn-type characters who flew planes and fought wars and did, did all sorts of amazing things. So in some ways I think maybe she was writing her own life into those, what she dreamed might have been possible if she'd been able to go out on her own and and so they were, I would not say they were literary, they were good reads and, in fact, they were a bit racy and a bit, you know, there's, there's some bad language, there's some not explicit sex scenes but, you know, there's some racy stuff in there. So for two young women of that time, again, and their station, to have been writing that style of novel was, again, very unusual. And I bet you it was lots of fun. And again, that would have given them more excuses for sort of play acting out scenes that they were going to write. Now, I think we should mention that there is a previous biography. Adrian Howley is, in fact, an interesting character in her own right, because she was Dorothea's nurse companion for 12 years until her death in 1968. And then she went on to become a Buddhist nun and and wrote considerably about Buddhism. You say that Dorothea's memories, as quoted by Adrian Howley, are not always reliable. And I was wondering how you kind of deciphered the facts there and whether they were 
important discrepancies or whether they were just the mix-ups that come, you know, with misremembering after a long time? Yes, there were certain things for me from her diaries and also from other research that didn't quite add up. I mean, Adrian Howley basically wrote, I guess, a memoir in a way, as told by her. Dorothea talked to her. She wrote down the anecdotes and she expressed them and she had no reason to suggest that Dorothea might not have been speaking the truth. And I don't necessarily think she was lying about some of these anecdotes. She could have been misremembering, but I also think maybe, again, she was creating a different truth for herself in her younger days because it suited her as an older woman to remember things that way. The first time I found something that didn't quite add up was when she was supposed to be engaged to a man in 1908. And in the Howley book, which is called My Heart, My Country, she says that she was over the moon to be engaged to this man and the family were very excited but there came an opportunity for her to visit William McGregor in Queensland, the governor that I mentioned previously, and he couldn't go with her and he didn't want her to go because there was going to be a Navy ship in Brisbane at the time and with all those sailors rolling around Brisbane, he just didn't think it was appropriate for her to be going up there and apparently, according to her, she took umbrage with this and if you can't trust me and if you have this jealousy, what you know, there's no way I'm going to marry you and I can't be having this, and she broke it off. I mean, there was no mention of this man in her diaries. She mentions, you know, minor suitors sometimes, you know, the child I mentioned and various other people who came in and out of her life, and she doesn't mention a man that she's going to marry. Not only doesn't mention him by name, but she doesn't mention that she's engaged or that she's excited or that she's told her parents. There's no mention of him whatsoever. And I really can't accept that she wouldn't write that in her diary when she's writing, oh, I, I bought a new book today or something. She's not talking about her fiancé. The other thing is she talks about it in 1908. William McGregor did not become governor of Queensland until 1909. And looking at the ships, the, the naval ships that were coming to Australia at the time, the only ship that came at that time, a US ship came to Sydney and to Perth, but it didn't dock at Brisbane. So she may have had a trip to Queensland. She may have had a proposal at some point that she rejected. She certainly visited William, but the dates don't add up. And the fact that there was no mention of an engagement in her diary suggests to me that it, it wasn't an engagement there may have been a proposal that we don't know about, but there certainly wasn't an engagement. Then later on, the second time there was an engagement was a young man called Patrick Chalmers, who was also a minor poet in London at the time. And Dorothea liked him very much clearly when they met. He gave us the phrase swings and roundabouts from one of his early poems, which I just <laughs> thought was a nice little fun fact. He... And Dorothea got on very well. They socialised a lot. Now, she tells a story that he proposed to her. She said, I need to go back to Sydney and ask my mum and dad's permission and then I'll write you. And she comes home, she asks their permission. They say yes. She writes back to him, but World War One has broken out by this time and the mail never gets to him. He doesn't hear back from her, so he marries another woman. 
again, there's no mention of this in her diaries. There's mentions of Patrick and her clear affection for him, but there's no mention of an engagement. There's no mention of her writing to him or her being heartbroken when she didn't hear from him. And at some point during the war, she says, oh, I understand Patrick's getting married today. You know, I'm so made up for him. Perhaps not those words. I'm so happy for him. And then when she goes back to London, she makes a point of meeting his wife and she hopes they're going to be good friends and dear friends. And again, I don't think there was any proposal. So was she misremembering? Was she creating things that maybe she'd hoped for? Or mm. or was she creating a backstory for the reason that she never actually married and therefore why she had spent so much time with Ruth? I don't know. Mm, there's a lot of detective work in this, isn't there? How many years <laughs> did you spend on this book? Five years. Five years. Yes. So, yes, there was a lot of detective work. <laughs> and I could have spent another five years, I think, but, you know, publishing deadlines and all of that. <laughs> I just want to go back on something that you mentioned, because you mentioned the diagnosis that the family have now of something that's a, obviously an inherited condition, which I think you said was sarcoiditis. Is that what you called it? Sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis. Okay, so you mentioned this condition, sarcoidosis, and you mentioned it as if it's now accepted in the family that this is an inherited condition. Do you mean then that you think that this entirely explains what Dorothea called the wobblies, but which you, I think, also interpret as periods of depression? Or do you separate out the periods of fatigue when she did take to her bed and and had some physical symptoms from a separate kind of mental health issue that manifested as depression? And do you think that maybe depression might have arisen when she had moments of strain, feeling that perhaps she wasn't living completely openly and authentically the relationship with Ruth? Or am I pushing too far there? No, I think all of those things are true. I, I do think that there very well could have been an autoimmune disease that was playing into the, some of these physical symptoms. But I do think the depression and anxiety, whilst they may have been exacerbated by this condition, I definitely think they existed outside of that. There, there's a lot of clues. There was her brother... Keith's death and she has a preoccupation then with death in her poetry going forward. She talks a lot about the wolves pursuing her. She she talks about the difficulty she has sleeping. She's a terrible insomniac and the demons that come in the night. And so I think that early trauma played into it as well. I think the sense that she couldn't perhaps have the fulfilling career that she wanted and, and maybe the university education that she wanted, the idea that somehow being married was the only kind of pathway for her. Indeed, she lived, as we continually say, a very privileged life. But coming with that is what is your sense of purpose? What, what at the end of the day, are you getting out of bed for if you've been to every function, every dinner party, every theatre show, every country in the world? What is your motivation? And I think as time went on, she struggled with that because she does, she, many of her poems, she talks about death personified. She talks about 
just feeling that maybe she's let life pass her by. There's stories about waiting. Oh, I've been waiting, waiting to come into my life, but nothing's happening for me. And so therefore she also drank quite a lot in her later years. I think there was medication for her nerves, which could have been morphine or something like that was that was around at that time. So I think a whole host of things came together to render her not quite herself in her later mm. years. What would you say, Deborah, is her legacy? Because I, I worry that, you know, that she's out of fashion or that she's been forgotten. And obviously your book brings us to her in a much more rounded and, and really fascinating way as, as such a sort of dynamic figure in her time. But what do you think is her legacy? Well, I'd like to think that even young women reading this story, even if they're not that familiar with the poem and even if they're not big poetry fans, I'd like them to think of it as a, as a slice of Australian history and a remarkable woman, regardless of the arguments about her literary legacy. She was brave. She was courageous. She did things that women just didn't do in the early 1900s. She was outside of the box and she was a trailblazer in many ways. And I love her for that. And, and I hope that in itself stands alone as a woman, even despite difficulties, despite having a lot given to her, she also had difficulties, but she can continue to push forward. And she never felt sorry for herself, I think it's worth saying. She was always very self-deprecating. But in terms of her literary legacy, My Country is the only poem, the only poem that is still quoted to this day in public discourse all of the time. We are, I cannot believe since I started writing this how many headlines in newspapers use it's a sunburnt country, droughts and flooding rains, every time there are floods, every time there are droughts. Politicians co-opted, it's quoted in Parliament, anti-climate change, pro-climate change, which given Dorothea's higgledy-piggledy politics should be quite amused by the fact that both sides are co-opting her poem to suit their particular argument. And people say, why has the poem endured? She captured something in the way she used beautiful language to talk about a country that still at that time was derided as being some kind of awful place on the other side of the world, you know, England's green and shady lanes, whereas she said, I love the juxtaposition of the beauty and the terror. I love its contrast. I love its colours. I love a sunburnt country, the beauty and the terror, the jewel sea. It's something that still gives goosebumps to Australians because they feel it in their bones. There's some kind of connection to the landscape that it just encapsulates. And I think it's going to be with us in terms of the phrases in our lexicon for many more years to come. I love that Deborah checked which ships came into port in 1908 to verify a claim in another biography. No detail is too small. If you enjoyed this episode, a good companion listen would be the one about the Countess of Kirribilli, Elizabeth von Arnim, who was born 20 years earlier to similar privilege and also became a writer. I wonder if they ever met. We also did an episode on a contemporary of Dorothea's, the much more radical Catherine Susanna Pritchard. 
Together, this trio is a reminder of how dynamic and varied women's writers' lives were in the early years of the 20th century. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences, which is produced on Darwell Country by David Roach for Two Heads Media and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. <laughs>